Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Hey, good morning. Before I um, begin the message, I want to just share uh, a little bit more insight on what's going to happen a couple Sundays from now at an event that has a familiar name but is continuing to evolve. We have an event each year that we call Harvest Fest. And it's not a festival to celebrate our church, but it's just harvest because that's the, the time. In, in, if we're not in agrarian culture, but um, this will be the time of the year where the harvest is taken in. And so it's like a fall celebration. And over the years, that event, it began as an, um, like a, years and years ago when we called it Hallelujah Night. It was like a safe alternative to Halloween. I don't think we necessarily need to protect our people from Halloween. But it evolved over time as we began to have a clearer understanding that this is an opportunity for outreach. This is a time when we want to tell our neighbors and our community, we are here and we love you and we love you in Jesus' love. So that's been happening over the years and I'm really proud of our church. I feel like that transition has happened beautifully and more and more we are there to reach our community. This year, we're going to continue the evolution even further. And on October 2nd, on Sunday, Harvest Fest is going to take place here at the high school from 1 to 4 p.m. But on that Sunday, because we have so much set up to do, and we really want to reach out to one another and to our neighbors, uh, we're going to actually cancel the regular Sunday service. And that Sunday, instead of worshiping God through singing and praying and listening to me or someone else talk, we're going to actively worship God by serving and loving one another and serving and loving our neighbors. I think it's important for us to learn that while this format may be the most common and familiar format of what we call the activity of worshiping and knowing God, serving and loving others is a legitimate, beautiful, even commanded way to honor God. So we're going to try that this year. I want you to see this not as an extracurricular activity or an elective course, but on Sunday, October 2nd, what I'm asking of all of you is to come to church. And I, I truly believe this. When a person is set free by the good news of the gospel, one of the results is that that person becomes truly free inside. Free to be joyful, playful, alive, loving, forgiving, Gracious, welcoming. Those are the things that are supposed to happen in us when the gospel sets us free. And so I'm going to ask you to come to church prepared to be that kind of person. And to really roll up your seats and be ready to show others a real warm welcome and a sense of love. And it's okay that day to have a blast as well. We're going to have a petting zoo. We're going to have maybe a fire truck, some police cars here. And uh, we try to get... We tried to get pony rides, but it wasn't happening. We're going to have a DJ, a lot of good food, two food trucks, two really good food trucks. We're going to have some free desserts, um, cotton candy. It's a lot of stuff going on. And we're going to just celebrate the goodness of life and let our neighbors know that there's hope, there's love, there's welcome to be found here in our community. So please come out Sunday, October 2nd for Harvest Fest and join us in celebrating and serving and loving with our community. Okay, are we good? So that week, there won't be a regular Sunday service, but I will send out a video, and that, that short sermon on the video will kind of set your hearts for understanding how this is legitimately a form of worship. I hope you will watch that either in small groups or with your family, or just by yourself, and it will prepare you spiritually for that day. This morning, I want to continue this series that we've been working through. It's, a, it's not a real series. It's two messages, but I think it's not just a series. This represents a, for me, a very clarifying, even seismic shift in how I really believe church should be understood and experienced. Last Sunday, I pointed out that um, the church exists in two distinct forms. And both these forms are truly, fully the church. The church exists as a church gathered and as a church scattered. 
And this is not language unique to me. I didn't make this up. It is language that is floating out there in a renewed movement to understand what is the church. I'm especially indebted to the folks at the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. They've done a tremendous amount of good work in this area, and their research and their work has presented a very clear picture for me that I find so compelling. When we gather like this on Sunday, what we usually call going to church, right? You ask each other, are you going to be at church? Uh, This is what we think about. The church gathered in this place for these couple of hours, that's church for most of us. When we meet as small groups or when a couple of you for accountability just meet at a a coffee shop just to talk about life and encourage one another. When we have our, our praise and prayer nights or our prayer meetings, All of that is the church gathered where at least two or three of us in Jesus' name come together. We are the church gathered. But the thing is, for most people in and outside the church, that's where the picture of church ends. That's what church is. It's the church gathered is church. But here's the the revolutionary truth that I think we all say we know, but I'm not sure we fully embrace this. That it is also after we stop gathering and we're scattered back to our lives that we remain fully in those places, the church. You may not have 120 of your friends with you, but you're still the church in that place, in that setting. This reinforces the idea that church is not a place you go to or a program you participate in. It's, it's not a location. It's, it's not a thing you do. Church is the people of God living out the calling of God to build the kingdom of God. Church is who we are, and we are the church when we're together, and we are no less the church when we're apart from one another. Last week, we looked at the church gathered, and I want to repeat some of the highlights of that because it is so important for us to get this and chew on it. When we gather like this, especially on Sunday morning, at least two very important things ought to happen. One is that we make much of God. Because in most other settings in our lives, God is kind of relegated to a background sort of static noise. And we don't think very directly about God. And yet God is the figure at the head of this kingdom. He is the central figure of the life of the Christian I remember when we started this church and I was bivocational, I was putting in about 50 hours a week in corporate IT. And I was shocked even as a pastor, because I was pastoring about 20 hours a week, and then I was working about 50 hours a week, and the result was my wife was basically a widow, my children were orphans. You know, it's like I, I wasn't around. And I was shocked at how quickly when I was in work mode, corporate IT mode, I would go an entire 10 to 12-hour day without a single thought about my identity as a Christian. I just would be so caught up in the politics of the office, in the rush of the projects, the deadlines we had. And I'm not saying that I was doing something horrible. or I just wasn't mindful at all that I was a Christian in that setting. I was at work, not at church. And so I ceased in that setting to be a person who belonged to God. And I think the culture and our understanding of church reinforced the freedom for me to hold that view that I'm at work, so I'm in work mode. And I'm not suggesting that the answer is to be religious in every setting. I don't think that's it at all. But to remain clearly rooted in my identity as the church of Christ, even when I'm in that setting. When we gather together, we worship and make much of God to remember as a community, he is the most important figure in our lives. Apart from him, we have very little reason for this weird group of people to come together. And how many times have I said that? And you all agree. Every time I say it, you look around and go, yeah, I would not be around you guys unless it was Jesus. I have other people I might hang out with. But we are family because his blood, his redeeming work over us, joins us together profoundly. And so we gather to make God central, to reinforce this idea that he remains legitimately king over this family. We also gather because in the gathering of diverse viewpoints and convictions, 
we wrestle together to understand what it means to be faithful to God in a changing, ever-complex world. I hope I made the case well last week that this world is becoming very confusing. On every subject, I've heard very educated, wise, sound-thinking people argue for totally opposite viewpoints from the same document. Whether it be the Constitution or the laws on the books or the Word of God, I have heard people passionately, sincerely argue differing viewpoints. We are in a more polarized time than ever before, and I truly believe this more than I have ever felt it before in my life, that in a divided, polarized world, the church is a unique place, a powerful place for a third way. The world has never succeeded in a legitimate third option on anything, ever. You got McDonald's and Burger King and then all the other whatevers. Canon, Nikon, I I shoot um, Sony, yeah, okay, whatever. Ford, Chevy trucks. Calvin's peeing on both of them. He doesn't, even, he doesn't even bother to pee on the other trucks. You guys don't want to talk about the little sticker. Okay. I'm not talking about, I'm looking right at Calvin. And he's like, could you please clarify? <laughs> Do you get the, the point is, the world loves polarization because it's spoiling for a good fight. It likes the clarity of not having to think beyond black or white. You're good, I'm bad, I'm good, you're bad. You're an idiot, I'm a genius. We love that clarity, that simplicity. And anyone who wants to be like, oh, but there's nuance, you're like, oh, shut up, you sissy. It's easy. Either you're with God or you're against God. If you believe that, you're not even a Christian, blah, blah, blah. That's the world we're living in. And yet I believe there is a legitimate third way that says, can we begin not with our tribal, extreme, polarizing perspectives, but begin here at the one thing that maybe in the revelation of God we can all affirm. Truths like God loves life and hates death. And you're a sociopath if you believe the opposite, right? Like, if you think that the God we worship loves death and hates life, don't come anymore. Like, why are you even here, right? So if we can affirm that, our interpretation of what that means, what that looks like, how to be faithful to such a God in this complex world, it's going to be a process, but at least we're beginning by affirming what can you and I actually agree on And then from there, let's have a real dialogue. And I never want Harvest to be an echo chamber where everybody is the same thing. Our diversity finds the greatest expression, the most beauty, when from various starting points, we can say, let's make Jesus and his kingdom and his word the starting point. And then let's cut away at it. And when you're chopping down a tree, you've got to hit that axe from both sides, right? Eventually, you've got to cut from both sides. That's what we're going to do. So that at the end... Messy as it is, we will as much as possible together, but at the very least, each of us individually will struggle to live out to the best of our ability, our best understanding of God's will at this time. You can be dogmatic about your convictions, but be careful how dogmatic you are about the way you express eternal truths in an ever-shifting world, because that eternal truth has to make sense in and to that shifting world. That's why God didn't just give us a book. He gave us brains. He gave us a community. He gave us mouths to speak. And he gave us a heart to wrestle together. That's one of the beautiful things that happens. So when I'm up here giving a sermon, I'm not just proclaiming this is what you have to believe. Somebody's got to say something, right? You know, when you're four of you in a car trying to figure out what to eat on Saturday night, you can't all be silent. Someone's going to go, Tacos? And everyone's like, nah, not tacos. But at least someone said something, and you could react to that. That's my job. I'm going to tell you this is my best read of Scripture. Here are things that we can affirm together. But I invite you, and some of you, I don't even have to invite you. You do this every Monday. It's great. Let's talk to each other. Let's actually have a dialogue. Go to your small groups and go, I think that dude's crazy. Here's why. But at least he was right about this. And start there. And then let's begin to work towards our best understanding. And let's stop objectifying or vilifying anyone who thinks differently because we're never going to get anywhere as a church or society if that's what we're going to do. So that's one of the beautiful things that's supposed to happen when we are the church together. That doesn't mean there's no such thing as absolute truth, so don't panic. 
But that doesn't mean you have a monopoly on absolute truth because your view is the absolute truth. That is scary to me. You can believe your truths with deep conviction, but you must also believe your truths with the humility that you do not have the infinitude of God and you cannot cancel the beauty and diversity of the church as he's formed it. Are we okay? I mean, that, if I'm going to get some emails, that'll be right there. I'll probably have a full inbox tomorrow, but I, I, I relish that. Please write to me. Talk to each other. So that's the two things that I especially cherish when we gather together, is that we in our diversity make much of the one God who unites us, and that we in our diversity wrestle together to try to navigate this complex world and remain faithful to this unchanging God and try to figure out together what that means. So that's the church gathered, and that's why we have small groups, and that's why we have Sunday services. But what about this other expression of the church, this church scattered? Do you remember we said last week that if you assume 120 waking hours in a week, some of you, that's like, that's a lot. I sleep more than that. And for me, it's probably closer to 150 if you have insomnia. But let's average it out, 120 waking hours in a week. About 10 of those, if you're a nutcase, you're at church or in some church-related activity, right? Like, those people who are really churchy are in church 10 hours a week, whatever that means. But 110 of those hours, you're out of the church gathered. You are the church scattered. So when you look at it numerically, the vast majority case in your life is that you are by far more often the church scattered than you will ever be a part of the church gathered. So if we're going to talk about what it is to be the church, we cannot just sit here and reinforce over and over again how we're supposed to behave when we're at church service or when we're in small group. That matters, of course, but it is the church scatter that is the, the vast majority of how you will follow Jesus in this world as his body. And so I want to take a look at two important things that the church scattered produces in our lives. First is it raises the scale of our impact. Scale meaning just like the volume of it, the, the intensity of it, the reach of it, the, the amount of it. If you consider harvest against the aggregate of the communities in which we live, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our social circles, there are far more people who are outside of harvest than in harvest. There are far more people who are outside of our faith than in our faith today. And so I'm really indebted to, to Neil Hudson from the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity for this next visual because I'm a very visual person. This, it's such a simple truth, but seeing it presented this way helped me. He talks about, by the way, guys, I don't know if you, there's a way to turn on this confidence monitor, but it's, it's dark right now. He talks about the church gather and says, if you are a numerical minority in your community, this is what it looks like when you cluster together, set against the background of the whole. And when you see us clustered in this way, those eight dots against a hundred looks awfully puny. Okay, all right. Thanks. <laughs> I just wanted everyone to look at you for a minute, Ben. But look what happens when you take the same eight dots and disperse it in the midst of the hundred. Suddenly, the eight that looks so puny against the whole clustered together looks like maybe there's a chance of reaching that large number. Two key things have to happen. Each one has to own the place where they are, and each one has to fully be what they're supposed to be in that place. If those two things happen, if those two things remain true then the church scattered will have a far greater scale of impact than the church gathered. Let me give you a more domestic example. If I have a handful of chocolate chips and I want to make a cookie, <laughs> which is the better cookie to eat? Because you can have an awesome bite and then like, this is bread for the rest of it, right? I don't know what I'm doing. If you want to flavor a whole cookie, that's the way to do it on the left, right? Agree? Disagree? 
And yet, our expression, our conception of church and the way we're going to impact the world is almost entirely this other thing. What happened? Oh, okay. It's this. We're like, what can we all do clustered together? What are we going to do? Because the only time we think of church is when we all together, everyone, are doing something. So we look at something like Harvest Fest and we think, that's community outreach. All of us are doing it. That means we care about community outreach. But when three of us do it, the church isn't doing it. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. If you want to cut, if you want to flavor, salt, color, touch this whole community, we can't only do it when we're the church clustered together. Especially when this is only one eleventh of the time that we're awake. It is when we are distributed and scattered into the mix that something powerful can happen. It raises the scale of our impact on our surrounding world. The bio teachers in our room will like this, but this is Saccharomyces cerevisiae. You know what that is? You know. <laughs> Bob knows. He's a biology prof. This is a, a single-celled fungus commonly known as baker's yeast. And the way it works is that it metabolizes simple sugars and carbohydrates, and the byproduct is, among other things, carbon dioxide and alcohol. Oh, those are two of my favorite things. <laughs> you know, what, what carbon dioxide and alcohol do to dough is it creates a rising of the dough and a flavor that is good for bread. And so for as long as people have been baking, they discover that when this fungus finds its way into my dough, the bread is much more enjoyable to eat. Jesus, understanding this principle, used yeast as a beautiful metaphor for the church. Matthew 13, he says this. Jesus also used this illustration. The kingdom of heaven is like the yeast a woman used in making bread. Even though she put only a little yeast in three measures of flour, about 60 pounds, it permeated every part of the dough. It permeated every part of the dough. Sixty pounds of flour is a massive amount of flour. Can we admit that together? It's a lot of flour. A particle of flour and a cell of yeast are roughly, on average, similar sizes. Anywhere from three to forty microns on average. Okay, that's that's small. And yet, those few single cells worked through sixty pounds of flour will rise all that dough together. Jesus was talking in part about his rule, the truths that define his kingdom, but he was also talking about his people. What he's saying is the nature of his kingdom is that it's not about numerical overwhelming force. It's about the fact that this kingdom and its people and its truths have such potency that even if they are in the numerical minority, they can have an outsized impact on whatever they surround, especially if they are distributed throughout and not clustered together. I was surprised to discover, because I don't cook or do any food prep whatsoever, so the first time I tried to bake cookies in college, I was shocked to discover salt is an ingredient in cookies. Did you know that salt, you're supposed to put salt in cookies? I, I didn't get that because I've never eaten a cookie and thought, oh, that's nice and salty. But then when I was making it, because I'm not a good cook or a good baker, when I made the cookie, I tasted the salt. Because <laughs> I didn't realize that you have to also mix the salt into the dough. It has another function. It's not about flavoring. It has some other function. And I bit into a cookie that had a nice little clustered gathering of salt. And I didn't like it at all. The idea is that if we are scattered and thoroughly distributed, something powerful happens. And here's the cool thing about yeast as an example, because this is Jesus' illustration. And remember, he's teaching as infinite God, but in a pre-microscope era. He's like, yeast don't know that this is their mission. They're, they're not on the earth to make dough rise. They're on the earth to break down carbohydrates and live. They're just doing their thing. They are being yeast. 
as yeasty yeast as yeast can be. And in the process of just being yeast, they have a powerful effect on the dough that represents their world. I don't think yeast wakes up in the morning and goes, oh, let's get this bread, guys. It just chows on the carbohydrates. But because it is being what it's supposed to be, where it is supposed to be, the effect is powerful in aggregate. A teacher knows that if you want to raise the performance of your class, you can't just have office hours and say, I'm one teacher, all of you try to come to me for help, you will never have a family life. Well, first of all, none of the students will actually take you up on that offer, but if they did, you'd be so busy... The way to elevate the performance of a class is to take two or three people who are exceptional students and tell them to go and circulate among their fellow students. Help them raise their performance. If you want to incite a crowd to revolution and riot, you don't do it with six revolutionaries against a crowd of a thousand trying to get something started in a cluster. You sow them all through the crowd and on a signal, you unleash mayhem and chaos And suddenly the entire crowd feels like a thousand people are rioting when it's only six. This is a basic strategy in having multiplied impact is that you can cluster something potent together and will only have a small impact. But you distribute it evenly. And this was the the genius, the, the wisdom of God. That's why, and I didn't tell our police officers I was going to talk about this, but In a city like Chicago, you don't police the city by having a thousand cops all walk together down one street in a parade. (laughs) Watch out for us, man. Because that's one cluster of police officers in one location. You have them patrol the whole city two by two. That's potent. That's how you multiply the reach of a small number. Are you getting the picture? This is why God calls us the church even when we're scattered. Because it is as the church scattered that Harvest Community Church has its greatest effect on the world. What can we really accomplish as a church in a 90-minute worship service together? This is what church is. What have we done today for our world? Well, one thing is we've given some money, but even that, everyone's given online, so you did that at home. You're growing, you're being encouraged, that's important, but it is gathering here as a base point, a starting point, to launch us into the church scattered. That is where we are most effectively, most frequently, the church. Okay, I could beat that to death. So let me move on to the last point here. This is very important for me. I don't know if you could tell I'm passionate about this because it has given me such clarity on what I believe the church should be. The church scattered also raises the scope of our impact. Scale is about magnitude. It's about size. But scope is about breadth. It's about direction. It's about the the variety of reach that we can have. This is where the diversity of the church becomes one of the greatest force multipliers. I celebrate diversity not just because it's socially acceptable or because it's cool or important, but because diversity is God's design for the richness of life on earth. Even before he made people, look at the diversity that is recorded in Genesis 1 and 2 in the way that he created everything. You've heard me say before, why do we have 300 kinds of squid on this earth? What is the point of that? Do we need 300 kinds of squid? I only need the one kind I could eat as calamari. Aside from that, who cares? But the the diversity is something that tips us off to the heart of God. Diversity equals richness in life on earth. And it is as the church scattered that our diversity finds one of the greatest, most powerful expressions. See, God has placed each of us in a context that's unique to us. One of the first places we see that difference is the work. Aren't you glad that we don't all work for the same company coal mine down the road in town? We have such a diversity. There are people here who make their living teaching something online. Other people who make their living patrolling the streets armed with guns. Others of us who save people's lives on an operating table or create functioning computer systems. 
Help people buy their homes. Make sure companies aren't sued inappropriately or do things legally. There's such a range in this room of how we spend the vast majority of our waking hours. It is in that as well as our other things. Our vocation is one place we see our diversity, but even in our avocations. Aren't you happy that we all are interested in different things? It makes life together so rich. You guys all know that I've become completely cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs for pickleball. Last week, I played every single day of the week. I still wanted to play more. I think they call that addiction, you know, like, I have a problem. But it's in that avocation, that passionate hobby, that I've made more new friends and acquaintances than I have in the last 10 years. And these are people I'm genuinely coming to enjoy and care about. People that I have a spiritual vision for, as well as just enjoying them. Liking them as human beings, even outside of any religious concern, I'm thankful that I met these good people. And that we have this thing that we enjoy together. And you'll probably never meet any of them if you don't like pickleball. That's your loss. But I also realized yesterday, as I went to an event, a social event with someone, we went to a gun range and we were shooting skeet, clay pigeons and stuff, and I'm like, wow. A lot of people are way more into guns than I will ever be. (laughs) It's fascinating. And let's not get into an argument about gun rights and all that. The, The point is, isn't it interesting that because of what you do for a living and what you do when you're not at work, it puts you in a unique context where the rest of us likely won't follow. Your life, your vocation and your avocations Put you in a unique context that the majority of the rest of this church will not share with you. And it's in those places that we see the purpose of God for the scope and the diversity of how he wants to work in this world. Consider the fact that 30 to 50% of your waking life, it should really not be 50%. Get some work-life balance if it's half your waking hours, but it's probably closer to 25 to 30% for most people. You're at work doing what you do to earn a living. That's probably going to be the primary arena in which you live out your calling to be a Christ follower. And in saying this, I mean more than that you do your job morally or you behave well, you don't cuss at work. It means more than just have a big study Bible on your desk or wear a retreat t-shirt on casual Friday. I'm talking about the work itself. There is a way to do the work itself that reveals and reflects the beauty of God. I'll give you two examples from my own life. After I graduated university, I worked as a surgical technician for a year. I wasn't supposed to be a surgical technician. I was supposed to be a surgical orderly. But because my father was a surgeon at the hospital, they kind of under the table promoted me in function. I got paid like an orderly, but I got to work like a tech. And so I got to assist my father in a surgical procedure. And by assisting, I don't mean I actually touched anybody's body. It's like I handed him stuff. And I got to watch. And I noticed something. Because I had assisted probably two dozen other surgeons over about 150 procedures before that. And then my dad comes in. And I'm like, I get to work with my dad. And I right away observed something. Oh my gosh, my dad is slow. Dad, I know you're listening to this message. It's going to end in a good place. (laughs) There was this one surgeon especially. He had a playlist before playlists were a thing. This was in the early 90s. And he would play classical music during the surgery, but then his experienced OR nurse knew when to switch the music, and as soon as 70s rock started, I knew he was closing the surgical wound. And in closing, it was like he was in a mad dash. To, I thought he had like the runs or something. He was sewing that person up so much at the end. I'm like, I'm not a surgeon. I never went to medical school, but I think I could have stitched that a little better. It looked like a Frankenstein's monster. It's like this giant. And this person, like, you, there's no doubt. Oh, you had surgery from a caveman. You know, like it's just like like a war patch. And then my dad would come in, and as he's closing this wound, he's like. And 
I'm like, all right, so dad, because I was young then. I, you know, when you were young, you're like, let's go, let's go. I'm like, dad, are you not good at this? You're so slow compared to everyone. So you know what he said to me? Dave, it's not about being able to do it. It's that this patient whose life I may have just served and saved has to look at that scar for the rest of their life. So this is the last act of love I have for them is that I want that scar to be so clean it just looks like a small discoloration, not like the side of Frankenstein's neck or the thing on his forehead. I want it to be clean. This is how I love my patients. And I want you to learn from this that the work itself matters. The way you do your work. Randy, I, I know I didn't tell you I was going to say this, but it's complimentary. If you know me at all, you know my teeth are a complete mess. I've had something like 12 root canals. I have more fake teeth than real teeth. And I've seen many, many, many dentists. But Dr. Randall S. Moy is the best dentist I have ever had in my life. I was this close to weeping the day he retired. I actually thought about somehow getting a Navy job just so I could follow you to Great Lakes. And it was the way he did the work. It wasn't just that he talked about Bible verses while he was cleaning my teeth or something. It was the work itself revealed something about the character and the heart of this God. He took seriously what he was doing. I love that. My son tells me there's a way to write clean code and a way to write code that's disgusting and breaks everything everyone else is doing. In whatever line of work you're in, there is a way to do the work itself that reveals God even if you don't quote a Bible verse in the signature of your emails. Now, don't worry. The spiritual and overtly religious part of it has a place. But even before you open your mouth in Jesus' words, the work of your hands should be a devoted, dedicated act of worship to the God who gives you the gift of work. Dorothy L. Sayers was a writer, an essayist, a novelist who was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, who was writing very heavily in the days just after and during and after World War II. She and C.S. Lewis became very close friends. Lewis would say she is one of his greatest inspirations and a person who he would like to read everything she's ever written. She wrote a, an essay that I think everyone should read called Why Work? She was one of the early people to talk about the, the implications of being a Christ follower and bringing that to what you do for a living in the majority of your life. And I want to share with you a short excerpt from that essay now. Listen to what she writes. In nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. She, the church, has allowed work and religion to become separate departments. How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his life? The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Amen. Start there. If you want to know how to be a good Christian, whatever you do for a living, please start there. I know that's exactly how many of you approach your work. I've had so many conversations with you. Many of you, I've visited you at your workplace. I've seen the way others regard you in that context. It's clear, it shows that you have done exceedingly good work in your day job. And that is an act of religious faithfulness. It is a spiritual thing to do the job that you do differently than everyone else might be doing it. To do it better than it could be done while holding on to your employment. To do it with excellence and care because this is our God. And when you look at the world he made and when you look at the way he's made us, there is clearly an imprint of excellence and care, not just in how he uses us, but how he made us. What do you make and bring into this world with so many of your waking hours? Should that not be in the work itself an expression of your response 
to this good God who's given you the gift of work. I think my dad did that well for his patients. I think Randy did that very well for my mouth. Many of you are doing the very same thing where you work. You're not cutting corners. You're giving your best. Just know that equals you being the church where he has scattered you. But there's more. In addition to our work, God has given each of us as Christ followers, if that's what you are, he's given you a different area of conviction or burden than he might have given other people. Maybe you care a lot about overseas missions, or maybe you care a lot about caring for those in need right here in your own backyard. Maybe it's racial reconciliation that gets you very motivated, or the plight of those suffering with mental illness. Maybe it's strong marriages that is your passion. Maybe it's ministry to children or to teenagers or to young adults. Maybe it's political activism. Maybe it's stewardship of the environment. Maybe it's reaching out to the marginalized and forgotten in our society. Maybe it's financial stewardship and getting people out of debt. There's no end to the things that we could be hot to trot for, that God has put a fire in our belly because he breaks and burdens our hearts for different things And all of that in aggregate, in our diversity of convictions, reveals this God who says, for God so loved the whole world. How can an infinite God who loves the whole world be reduced to one cause that you care about? How can you make it about that? It is in the fact that so many of us are involved in different ministries, some of which I will never darken the doors. I've been a pastor here for 27 years. I've never once sat in a Seeds children's ministry classroom, even when we're the church gathered. So next year, I'm going to be gone from this pulpit for a month while I put on a vest and serve as a Seeds teacher because i got to know what that's like. But I'm going to be honest with you, that's the first and last time I'm going to do it (laughs) because children's ministry is not my burden. I love children. But of all the things I could give my energy to, that's not what God has activated my heart for. And that's okay, because 40 of you have a very different feeling about it. Praise God that you do. Do you see that for a God who so loved the whole world, we're going to only see the fullness of that love, the scope of that love, when we look at the whole church and go, Why do people here care about that? Because God cares about it. He put that on that person. And I'm so thankful that while I'm busy marching for racial reconciliation and justice, someone else is in Albania leading someone to Christ and and knowing that even though I can't be at everything, we are at all those places. Do you see how impractical it is for us to insist that the church gather do everything all at once together? To say that the only way we'll know that this church cares about overseas missions is when all of us go on a mission trip. What nonsense. I think we should all value it. We should affirm how important it is. But I don't think we're all supposed to go. We'd be broke if we tried, first of all. But I also don't think that's important because in our diversity of burdens and convictions, the many-faceted, broad love of God for the whole world is visible in what you care about. Do you know how often I've heard, this church doesn't care about this because I care about it, but no one else does. Then this church cares about it because you are this church. If you care, we care. Thank God you're here. Because if you weren't here and you didn't care, then truly, this church wouldn't care about that at all. But God, in his wisdom, has touched each of our hearts for different things. The only way to fail God is to not care about anything. Right? That's the only way to truly fail God, is to be apathetic and numb and not care about the world around us. But if you care about one thing to the eclipsing of other things, and you're going to be exceedingly faithful in that cause... You are the the body of Christ. You represent harvest caring about that thing. If we insist that the only way to know this church cares is if not just me, but everyone else cares about it, not only do you rob the church of the power of its diversity, you cripple and limit what we can do. 
Because let's suppose all of us did this. Should all of us also go to the children's ministry and then all of us, we'd be at church all day because we have to all do children's ministry, then we got to all go to youth group, then we got to all do the young adults, and then all the women have to, you see what happens when we insist that only the church gathered proves what we care about. It is the church scattered that shows what this church cares about. In part, that is the thrust of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12 when he used this ingenious metaphor of the human body to describe the church's diversity. If the foot says, I am not a part of the body because I am not a hand. And you might think that's just about envy, but it's not. Often it's about bitterness. You know, if I'm the only one who's, who's going to care about this, I'm, I don't feel like I'm part of this church. People have said those things to me. There are times when I've felt it. Like, doesn't anyone else care about this? If that's, I just don't feel any connection to this church if they don't. And do you hear that language, which is actually insidious, when we ever talk about the church as they? That means you don't actually believe this, that you are the body of Christ. There's no they in church. It is you and me together. We are the church. Harvest is a 501c3 organization, but that is not the church. It's not something, some organization on a website at a physical address on a government filing that is Harvest Community Church. We are the church. There is no they. There's just us. If the foot says, I am not a part of the body because I am not a hand, that does not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, I am not a part of the body because I am not an eye, would that make it any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye... How would you hear? Let me put it another way. If the whole body only cared about racial justice, how would the poor ever eat? How would children ever find out about Jesus? How would people work their way out of debt? How would those with depression ever find their way to a counselor? How will a struggling student find a tutor who helps them have a future? How will a fatherless boy find a mentor? How will, how will, how will? Do you get how that works? Or if your whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? But our bodies have many parts. And God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it only had one part. Yes, there are many parts but only one body. And so here's what I'm asking of you, church. You may love and care about something so deeply, you want everyone to care about it. That's beautiful. That's exactly how we should feel. Hold that feeling. Don't lose it. But here's what I ask of you. Don't be a judge. Don't hold a grudge. Maybe give a nudge. That's my Dr. Seuss for the day. Don't be a judge. Don't hold a grudge. Don't say, I'll only know that we care about it if the church gathered all does it. Just say, I and a few of the people who have the same heart, the same burden, we are holding it down and doing what this small 120-person church in the suburbs of Chicago can do in our corner of the kingdom of God. And by His grace, others might join us. But even if they don't, all know that because of us, because of me, Harvest is doing this work. My life, my ministry, puts action and flesh to the love of God expressed in this unique way through me. And so I know that Harvest cares because I care and I am the church. We are a church that meets in one location once a week. But we are a church that lives in hundreds of locations daily. So the next time I go to a pastor's conference and they say, hey, tell me about your church, I'm going to say this. Yeah, I'm the lead pastor of a, a massive multi-site church. We have, we're, we have 120 sites. And they'll be like, whoa! Have you written a book or something? I'm like, no, we just have 120 sites where our church lives and acts, moves and breathes, where they gather. Because that's the truth of every church. There's no such thing 
as a church that is not multi-site. Where you live, where you work, where you play is the church. And if you love God and you love others and you live out your life, then you are the body of Christ in that place. And harvest is there with you. If you don't, that's the easiest way to nullify this church. If all you do is come here once a week to the church gathered and then check out of your followership of Jesus, there is no church. There is just a meeting. That's the, that's the main way we stop being the church. So I ask you, take this to heart. Think about your response to this truth. Isn't it encouraging to know we're a massive multi-site church? I wonder if I get sued for putting that on our website. We meet in 120 locations every day, 24-7. <laughs> how beautiful a truth that is. And how if we really live that out, God would touch Chicagoland so powerfully through us. Can we just bow for a moment? There's a lot that was said. Some of it intentionally provocative. I don't want you to hear me saying that we collectively shouldn't move in directions. We should. There are going to be glorious moments when we all together as a church gathered will do the same work in the same place. I love those times. But by far, the majority case will be that our church will live and serve and love in this world through you. In your little corner of the world. And if you will be faithful, God will reveal himself. So why don't you uh, just, I'm going to invite you, respond to God in your own context, in your own voice right now, just for a minute. And then we'll sing a couple songs and we'll close out the service. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.